This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this episode, we're recording in Denver, but my guest is one I was hoping to talk to in his own brewery in northern Vermont earlier this year. A trip just didn't didn't manifest itself, and so uh, we took advantage of the opportunity to talk here at the Great American Beer Festival. Joining me is Vasily Gletsos from Wunderkammer or Wunderkammer Beer. Perfect. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. We'll get we'll give you both pronunciations of, <laughs> of Wunderkammer. Um, your, your brewery is based in Albany, Vermont. Yep. Yeah, that's right. You got to come visit even uh, sometime in the future. I am absolutely that I've got a whole itinerary planned between Northern Vermont and uh, Montreal and back and uh, uh, maybe even into New Hampshire to go see the Schilling folks. We're going to make this happen at some point. Great. Um, but I didn't want to miss out on this conversation in the meantime. You know, Wondercammer, Wondercammer, uh, you know, is a special creative project for you, a, a realization of your own creative vision for what brewing can be, um, and heavy on a personal story, a foraging story, you know, a technique, uh, a culture, a brewing culture story, uh, a story of place, um, and a artful story that's also inspired by, uh, your background in performance and play. And, uh, you know, the brewery kind of sums all of those things up. So we're going to talk about how that manifests itself in the beer that you make both through a technical process and through your creative process behind beer. Great. Before we do that, for years, GD Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. They know brewing doesn't stop at five o'clock, and nor do they. GD uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. With 24 7 service and support, your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need. It provides you with the peace of mind your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. This episode is also brought to you by BSG. Want a natural and economical clarification aid that doesn't impact beer flavor? then you need Carry Biofine Eco. Developed as a part of Carry's Eco Brewing Range, Biofine Eco is a plant-based fining agent that improves beer clarification by instant flocculation of yeast and trube. Available exclusively from BSG. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And if you hear Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. The flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. Their new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through the word-of-mouth recommendation of another brewer to join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community. Learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. So Vasily, let's, uh, let's give me the wonder, the wonder camera story. And, uh, or I should say, Let's talk about your brewing story leading up to the Wonder Camera story. Um, track for me your your experience in the brewing world, uh, how you decided to become a professional brewer, and uh, where that took you, which is apparently across the United States. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I first uh, came into contact with – I wasn't actually much of a beer drinker as a younger college student and stuff like that um, – I really came into contact with brewing through uh, uh, fresh out of art school. I joined the Bread and Puppet Theater in rural Vermont and um, was a company member there. And uh, there was a very heavy DIY culture there. Uh, people were gardening, making all kinds of things, including beer. And so somebody showed me how to make beer. Uh, I started off in the very kind of stupid way of uh, trying to malt my own grains and <laughs> doing doing all that, going very basic. But uh, but I started getting. Uh, you gotta you gotta uh, uh, walk before you can run. Yeah, in this one. yeah but, exactly. Uh, you just took off for a sprint. Huh? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, I wound up just getting every book I could from interlibrary loan through the library and uh, talking to a health food store, getting actual brewing supplies, and uh, taught myself all grain brewing from the beginning. Um, and, uh, that, that was at the same time as I was going on tour and trying different beers from different places. Like we would do a month long stint in uh, New York city at the theater for the new city. And, uh, while I was down there, get out late at night and those bodegas are open into the late hours of the evening. So pick up one of 500 different kinds of beers that they had down <laughs> sure, there. Sure. Uh, Places like that is where I'd first experienced uh, DuPont, first time I experienced Baltic Porter, and really got an idea of the breadth of uh, the spectrum of what 
beer could be, you know. Um, I went to college in Portland, Maine, which is a great brewing city itself. But uh, they were, you know, it's all kind of Ringwood uh, brew pub style stuff, which is sure. fine. But it just, I didn't have that same perspective. It looks different now than yeah. it did then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, uh, and yeah, so that's kind of where I picked up where I picked up brewing in the first place. And uh, also while I was there, uh, of course, I was performing with the theater, and I was also um, uh, foraging quite a bit. I would sort of taught myself mushroom foraging, and just sort of that was for me a very important gateway into into mm. nature, like. You know, I'd been an avid hiker and stuff as a kid, but sort of breaking that breaking that wall of like trees that I don't know anything about or trying to that objective of getting to the top of the mountain and uh, actually like engaging with the landscape in that kind of way, like looking around, up, under, below, all that, all that kind of stuff and finding all the sort of awe-inspiring stuff that was out there. And so, so that started to play a role in your brewing even then. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, everything from making mushroom stouts and, uh, you know, adding all kinds of herbs and fruits. And, uh, there's, you know, we, where, where I live in Vermont, there's not the same range of fruits and vegetables available that you might find. Like, for example, there's very limited stone fruit. Hmm. Um, and so I just got uh, really interested in the sort of native berries and was making like what they call like family wines, like vegetable wines mm-hmm. and fruit wines and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah. And just started, really exploring this stuff at hand. What, uh, what, what made you take a step away from puppetry and into professional brewing? Yeah. As it, as it, as it turns out, uh, it's, uh, it's a lot more, uh, a lot more, uh, financially stable. <laughs> to- <laughs> and that is such a relative statement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At that, at that point I'd moved out with my partner to uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, with the vague idea of, uh, of continuing in puppet theater. But at the same time, I was a really avid home brewer and just the sort of dynamicism of that brewing community out there on all levels from home brewing to, uh, to professional was a uh, really dynamic. So I, uh, it's contagious. Yeah. Sure. I was just out there last week and, uh, you know, between the, the creative attitudes and the, the, the spirit of the brewers. It's, it's just such a, still a beautiful place. Oh, it is the best brewing community too. I love all those people. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. So, so you started working professionally as a brewer. Yeah. Yeah. Started, uh, started my first job. It was my first couple of jobs were, uh, through different brew pub chains, uh, up there, but, uh, you know, they were kind of not necessarily so remarkable in the brewery themselves as much as the brewers that I got to work with. Yeah. Um, and they went on to do really great things in the in Portland itself, and uh, and I thought for what those brew pubs were, it was really great. Uh, you know, there um, I worked with some of the directors of quality control, so I felt like I got like with my art school training a really solid foundation in brewing practice. So, what was the the moment where you knew that this was going to be the career that you were going to continue to follow and dive deeper into? Oh, I mean, for me, since the beginning, just the um, it was what what I always found so engaging was the uh, it really uh, incorporates both hemispheres of the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my father and brother come from science backgrounds. Uh, me and my other brother come from art backgrounds, and uh, just that uh, sort of satisfied both of those together. And not just that, but also, I mean, there's a, a fair amount of schlep work to be done in a, in a brewery <laughs> as well. And I really enjoyed working with my hands and having that break up the monotony of, um, you know, what, what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out how to do in the brew house and all those kinds of things. Um, that was a big part of my puppetry career too, like loading and unloading the tour bus and all Sure. Sure. What, uh, what then took you back to the East coast? Um, well, there were uh, new England for that matter. Yeah, sure. Uh, when I was out in Oregon, I'd been professionally brewing there about 10 years at that point. I was a plate at a place called Laurelwood. And uh, I'd been exploring ideas of starting Wonder Camera out there, and it had a focus on foraged ingredients, had a focus on uh, making mixed culture beer. And then uh, uh, I took a trip back east, because my wife is from that same area where the puppet theater is, which also happens to be the same area that the Hill Farmstead Brewery is. Hill Farmstead? Yeah. Uh, sounds familiar. I'm yeah, they're they're uh, they're 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 yeah they're a little little place up in the northeast, uh, worth checking out. Sure, wherever in the area. So so I've heard. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and I'd connected with Sean uh, years back. He actually loaned me a bunch of 
equipment for my uh, for my wedding. I brewed up a bunch of beer, mm-hmm. and uh, and we got married over at Bread and Puppet as well. And and uh, anyway, I'd stayed in connection with them and told them I was planning on opening a brewery out in Oregon, and he uh, invited me to come back and work with him. And since I have family there and my wife's family's there, it seemed like a no-brainer. They were just undergoing a big expansion there. What, about what year was that? Uh, that was beginning of 2015. Okay. Yeah. And uh, during the course of my work there, uh, the uh, I was offered to start a side brand, hmm. which was awesome, very generous. And uh, me, as well as uh, another friend of mine, uh, both did this where we started side brands out of Hill Farmstead. And yeah, and so my uh, my concept was Wonder Camera. I was going to make mixed culture beer, bring in foraged ingredients. Uh, my very first beer was one made with sumac. My second beer was one made with lichen and mushroom. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, kind of off to the races at that point. Sure, sure. What... Uh you know, what did you then start to pull on through this uh, idea of undercomer? Obviously, the you know idea of forage ingredients is right. key to it. But talk, yeah. talk to me about your like. I mean, there's plenty of forage ingredients to pull from, and it's one thing to make stunt beers, yeah, and it's another thing to make you know fully realized, expressive beers with a culture that's working in sync with ingredients, you know, and managing all of those pieces. You know, how, what was there, were there some kind of fundamentals behind it? Because at the same time, you know, Hill Farmstead also has their own mixed culture program. Yeah. Also pulls, you know, dandelions from uh, sure. the field and makes Vira and, uh, you know, also is operating in a similar space with, with some of these beers. There's some crossover there. What, how would you differentiate Wonder Camera? Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, my project really started out of as wanting to blend uh, my art background, blend uh, my foraging practice, uh, along with the mixed culture beer. And since the beginning, we'd been using different cultures. Uh, I'd, I've never used the one from Hill Farmstead itself. Um, and uh, and for me, it's really about the experience, almost um, almost performing a little bit, and like you know, going out into the woods and spending time out there, gathering the materials. And you know that is uh, that is an aspect of what they do as well, but uh, it's pretty central to to what I do. Um, and a lot of it is about exploring how those things come together and uh, continuing to iterate things. I I might work with similar materials like sumac, like goldenrod, like yarrow, but I'm using them in various kinds of uh, iterations each time. I've uh, I haven't really made the same beer twice. Um, the whole concept, you don't step into the same river twice. Uh, I feel like goes, goes the same for seasonality, goes the same for beer production, for where the culture is, where the landscape is at, you know? Sure. Sure. I want to talk about, you know, then take this in two directions and one, you know, again, try to drill down on what that creative process looks really where you, like how you take the inspiration from, from these natural ingredients and actually figure out how to make a good beer with them. Mm. Um, but then also kind of get into some of the, the technicals behind it because you have a, a lo-fi, uh, kind of approach to beer making. Um, you know, it's an intentional approach, but it's also not a, uh, you know, you know, compared to brew systems that you have brewed on at other places in the past, you know, you, it is a, a purposely, uh, I don't want to call it rustic, but it is a, it's definitely, a, a process that's meant to, to you know, kind of strip down to the very core of beer making. I want to talk about both of those things, yep. but before we do that, AccuBrew now monitors specific gravity to ensure consistent results and detect problems before they ruin a batch. The AccuBrew system is designed to give you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. Monitor gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. Schedule reminders and receive alerts anywhere, anytime. AccuBrew's CIP-ready device is designed to stay out of your way 
They know your time and space is precious and they take up as little of both as possible. No more samples, no cleaning and no calibration. Set it and forget it. To learn more about AccuBrew, head on over to AccuBrew.io. Also, ProBrew is excited to announce they are currently featuring short lead times between two and four weeks for their in-stock ProFill rotary can fillers. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, fill out their contact form on www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. Well, let's start by talking a bit about, you know, the framework of the way that you brew at Wonderkammer. Okay. You know, describe to us your you know, the technical system that you've built to make beer. Yeah, it is about as simple as brewing gets. Um, It is located on a farm that was formerly used uh, as a creamery and a cheese making facility for the, uh, for the landowners there. Um, When uh, they stopped making cheese, I took over their cheese house, which basically consists of a large vat. Um, I've, I uh, had some, uh, louder plates fabricated for the vat. Um, and, uh, I have a very simple mill, uh, and, uh, and yeah, I, I mash in onto that, onto that system. I've made some modifications. A good old dairy it. tank, uh, old, mash done. Okay. Good old dairy tank. Yeah. I had a big, large copper kettle fabricated from this, uh, person in Virginia. And, uh, I, I would, fi- I built up a little kind of stove for it. And, uh, and yeah, so, what volume is the the copper kettle? Uh, it can do up to ten hectoliter. Okay. Yeah. So so a decent amount, which is about the same as you can fit into one of those totes, which will come into play later on. <laughs> sure. Um, so I mash into there. Uh, very simple single infusion system using spring water that that I collect in a tote. Um, on demand heat going into the mash tun. You collect into a tote, is it? Yeah. So that it's spring water. So it it it's basically kind of on demand, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a well. So if you don't collect it, you might run dry. So there's a spring on the property and you just collect the water. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's the same that they use for their animals, for their house, things Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, so, so yeah, collect into the, uh, so mash into the, mash into the old cheese vat, uh, and then recirculate and run off into the large copper kettle, I fire the copper kettle with um, the sort of uh, rounded ends of dimensional lumber when pe- hmm. when people take uh, take trees down and cut lumber for themselves out of it. Uh, they, there's the sort of rounded ends that they can't really use, so they're kind of become scrap free basically. Um, and they're they're often soft woods like pines and things like that, which burn fast, burn hot, which is totally appropriate for what I'm doing. And yeah, so I'll, I'll boil in there and then. Um, while I'm doing that, I'll empty out the cheese vat, take out the take out the louder plates, and it's it's a it's it's like a it's it's a dairy vessel, so there's like no nooks and crannies to it. There's mm-hmm. just very straight stainless steel, and I can clean that out and use it as a cool ship. Mm. So in wintertime, I'll I'll keep it in there over the overnight. Uh, summertime, I'll use a heat exchanger and just use the cool ship to hold it as I knock out, mm-hmm. and I knock out into a tote. Uh, I bring that, so, but a direct fire kettle, wood fire brew system. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's very, uh, very basic, but, uh, it, it, it does everything I need it to. So. It also gives you a lot of character, I imagine, to the, yeah. the beer that you're brewing into it because of the nature of both the, the copper and the, uh, that kind of direct heat. Yeah. That, and also a ton of versatility. I mean, you can throw botanicals at it at any aspect. I mean, it, you're not messing around with the calandria. You're not messing around with, uh, some filter, uh, some kind of filtration that it's not going to get through, you know, uh, using the cool ship. I mean, sure. Yeah. It's, it's largely used, uh, as for people for spontaneous fermentation, but it is just, again, a very basic piece of brewing equipment used in lager production. Sure. sure. You know? So, um, so just being able to use that is another opportunity for me to drop a little bit of protein, uh, maybe do a, an a extended contact with some botanicals or hops or whatever else, uh, before I send it, uh, before I send it into the, into the tote and bring it over to the cave. 
<laughs> the cave. Yeah. Uh, before we get into fermentation, I, I'm I'm still, you know, I, I visited Scratch. Of course, did a podcast mm. with them. They're working on a you know, even larger, you know, direct fire wood uh, fired kettle. Yeah, um, they told me who made their kettle. Yeah, that, that's that's who I went to. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, a lot of commonalities there. Obviously, their background of forge brewing, and, and uh, you know. Um, absolutely beautiful experience. And it's so I love watching brewers who get down into that very core, you know, you could call it a historical approach, but at the same time, it's, it's as relevant now as it ever was. Yeah. It is just an intentional process in a different kind of way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you think of it, we don't really need, uh, breweries to be super large anymore. We don't, <laughs> they don't need to, uh, they don't need to be these colossal, and and as a matter of fact, seem to be going away. Uh, some of the large, large regional breweries. Um, I think it's it's fine to have a multitude of breweries that operate on a smaller level that's more connected with agriculture, the agricultural roots of where brewing came from. Sure, sure, and as long as there are consumers that will support that vision sure. and uh, you know are willing to to you know pay a price for the beer that is so manual yeah that's um true. you know but at the same time it also you know you're reducing some expenses that come in you know in that process of brewing from the way that you do it yeah um now it has to require a lot more hands-on attention i mean all brewing does especially on the hot side mm -hmm. but you're having to stoke a fire and keep a fire going you're having to manage temperature on the in the kettle you know, by the uh, wood and how the fire is burning. Um, you know, those are some challenges that brewers typically don't have to face these yeah. days. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, a, a brew day is a whole day endeavor. You know, I don't have another mash coming in afterwards. Um, whatever, whatever. Four gonna... turns on the wood fired yeah. copper. No, no. <laughs> no it's, it's, uh, it's what I do that day. Um, uh, and, and, and it's interesting too, I was describing the winter versus the summer brewing and it, it matches well with the daylight hours, you know, uh, the winter brewing takes about eight hours The the summer brewing takes more like 12 hours. <laughs> so it, uh, it kind of matches the, matches the daylight in that kind of way. What changes the, the process? Is it just the speed of cooling? Then? Oh, I can just send it into the cool ship and mm -hmm. then I'm done with it for the day. <laughs> I can go on to cleaning. I'm not having to then send it into another vessel, bring it over to the cave, knock it out over there, uh, and then clean up everything at the end of the day. So, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your, the cave and this, this fermentation approach. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so the cave was a later addition to their cheese operation. And uh, it is just simply a, a man-made cave. It has walls that are 15 feet thick. Um, and uh, it's kind of partially excavated, uh, partially built above ground. And it's just a super consistent place uh, for me to ferment and age, uh, age my beer. So basically, I bring it over with a, with a tractor, uh, knock it out into a, a, a fermenter with some mixed culture in it, rest there for a couple weeks, uh, you say a fermenter, what is, oh yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a shallow, it's not a cylinder conical tank, yeah. but it is stainless steel. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, just where I keep my culture. You say shallow. So I assume you're, you've thought about the tank geometry on this, uh, mixed culture farmhouse Saison. Yeah. I mean, fermenter. it's ideally there's no, no issue if it was a cylinder conical, I just don't happen to have one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sure, it's, sure. it's what I have and it, it works, it works pretty well. I mean, the advantage being if it was cylinder conical, I could probably do more harvesting off of it and mm -hmm. things like that and, uh, move things around that way. But by and large, it works just fine for me. And so there's no temperature control then on the fermenter. It's no. simply picking up the ambient temperature from yeah. the cave. Yeah, no, all of my all of my yeast cultures are selected for the for the high temperature tolerance. Interesting. Yeah, like Belgian or or, or Norwegian or whatever else. Okay. Well let's talk a little bit about that then. Uh, since you are opting into some of these constraints. Yeah. And you know, you are then having to choose ingredients or process, you know, yeast. Uh, in this kind of way, in a way that's going to fit into some of the constraints that you've now selected for yourself in yep. this. How did you then go about select finding cultures that were going to work in, you know, and I imagine a cave is both going to be pretty cool for most of the year and then, yeah. uh, and maybe not to fluctuate that much. And if it's, you know, hitting these 
50 or 60 degree kind of consistent temperatures as I would expect a yeah, cave would. That's pretty accurate, right? Between 50. I mean, I, I work in Celsius, but it's usually, you know, between 12 and 19 Celsius. Uh, that's the, that's the whole fluctuation of the year. Those, and that seems to be, you know, in a lot of ways, actually a little cooler range than a lot of people would ferment some of these, say, mixed culture and farmhouse focused beers. Mm -hmm. How did you go about working through which cultures you're going to make beer with that were going to work in this, this kind of constraint environment? Yeah. I mean, basically I'm looking for a, a sack strain that's, that's going to be able to tolerate those higher temperatures, uh, and uh, have it be, uh, uh, a great a great temperature you range. You higher temperatures, but they so, feel like lower temperatures to me. Uh, so that's where they start, but they'll often oh, okay. get up into 26 to 28, 30 oh, degrees. Okay. okay. Uh, sometimes, and uh, sometimes I'm knocking out uh, 24, 25 degrees. Uh, maybe there's, there's fluctuation there. So um, yeah, fairly wide range then. And, yeah. and also driven some by seasonality. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you can only predict so much, how much it's going to cool overnight. Uh, and you know, I might tack on a few hours or a few less, but it really depends on whether it's, you know, negative 10 degrees outside or more like zero, you know, how did you go about selecting or isolating or building some of the core cultures you use? And for those cultures that you, you use often, not like, you know, how wide is that library? You know, do you, how many do you keep going at a time and how do you then choose, you know, for each beer that you're making, um, and then walk me through how, you know, your process to step up while keeping that whole culture in sync. Yeah, I'd, I'd say when I'm pitching new culture, and often that would be a lab culture, um, it's it's something that I, I tend to choose Brett based on some of the more kind of uh, citrus aspects of it. Mm -hmm. You know, that those are flavor profiles that I just gravitate towards. Um, and some, and at the same time, though. Uh, there's definitely a fair amount of entropy in it. I mean, just the fact that I'm I am using a cool ship in winter time, uh, there's there's a good amount of uh, inoculation that can be happening there before it even meets with my house culture. So um, I usually start at that as a point of deviation uh, uh, that you know from the from the lab culture itself. And uh, as successive generations come on, I just try and stay really in tune with the, with the current status of the culture. I'm not, um, I wouldn't say I'm trying to guide it with a heavy hand. I'm just trying to make modifications as things go along. Uh, if I feel like the culture is leaning more towards acidity, uh, I might try and tamp it down with, with brewing a more, uh, higher IBU work, uh, just to inhibit some of that lactic acid bacteria. Um, and there's various kinds of levers that I'll pull, throughout the year, depending on where the culture is going. Um, sometimes I'll be culturing up, uh, you know, former, former bottles that tasted really great. And that might become part of the culture there, or that might become part of the culture in an individual barrel that it goes into. Mm -hmm. When you are working with lab cultures for a, for a new brew, are you pulling on, you know, cause you mentioned choosing Brett based on citrus character, yeah. um, but also, you know, choosing sack strains that are going to have that kind of wide temperature, uh, uh, you know, variation and be you know productive throughout yeah. that range. Um, are you working with labs that may give you all of that in a blend or are you, you know, blending some of these cultures based on, you know, on the, you know, kind of sack strain plus Brett strains and, and building your own mix for these. Yeah. Usually I'll build my own mix. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I, I don't tend to go in for too many of the, um, really big Brett blends that you yeah. see some of the producers doing. Uh, why not? Well, first off, uh, some of it's like unfamiliar, unfamiliarity with some of the, sure, some of the products sure. that they do. And, Often as well too, it's uh, it's hard to believe that there's going to be a lot of uh, fidelity over successive generations to that to that initial strain, and uh, I feel like there's still a lot of kitchen sink kind of uh, approaches to it, and uh, you know you'll still see things like this is funk, this is funky. It's like that that word doesn't um, has doesn't have as much meaning as they they think it does you know <laughs> uh it just it's it's it doesn't quite uh resonate with me I'm the branding not, throws you off even. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and 
and, and so I'm I'm looking for specific attributes. I'm looking for There's some aggressive aggressive names that they throw in with uh, with funk also, which uh, yeah. may be a little off putting. Who knows? Yeah, no, definitely, and and you know part of the part of the power of of mixed culture beer is that I find it very transportive of uh, brings you to a time and place, but I don't always want that time and place to be a barnyard. So <laughs> it can be fine now and then, but uh, yeah. What what flavors do you like? Your mixed culture, you know, your sack and Brett blends to evoke, and obviously some of this is going to change beer to beer. But if it's not barnyard, what do you what do you try to optimize for both uh, in terms of acidity, in terms of you know, what you say in terms of funk character mm. and in terms of, uh, you know, the way that all of these fermentation flavors then impact, you know, what do you, how do you, yeah, I mean, by, do, by, you, do you have, do you start with a vision for what it's going to taste like and try to build it? Or do you, does this whole concept of what the beer is going to be evolve yeah. as you taste and you steer and direct? Now that that's, that's a great question. Um, I'm very much closer to the second, to the, to mm-hmm. the latter. Um, I really feel like at every stage you have to approach it as a new beer. Like whatever dreams and aspirations you had for that beer going into it, uh, you're faced with the reality of what that beer actually is, you know? And, uh, and I feel like if you're not tuning into that, uh, paying attention to what it's trying to tell you, you're going to miss something. There's a bit of, you know, the director's art. If we go back to the, the puppetry, you know, yeah. uh, background there, where you're you are working with actors that also have their own idea yeah. of what of how they're going to perform yeah. in this performance that you are then the director of. It, At the same time, you can't let the actors do whatever they want to do, or else you'll have a you know incoherent and uh, you know, lacking cohesion kind of performance. You have to pull that together, but you also have to respect the creative contributions of, of all of those actors in the performance. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's a lot of art metaphors that I can think of, uh, especially in, in painting, you know? Sometimes you have to make broad strokes. Sometimes you have to erase the work that you had your heart set on uh, up until that point and, and introduce something else that's that's going to uh, shift the dynamic of it. Or um, I personally, I came from a, a kind of a printing background, so um, just sort of working things in layers, uh, and uh, and and knowing that uh, you know you're working with whatever it is you previously printed uh, before you start reducing the print and making another color on top. Oh, I, I love the printmaking uh, the metaphor there. Let's talk about like, maybe walk through a beer and yeah. and walk through you know some of your process for it. A beer that may have changed you know through that and how you made some you know kind of responsive decisions. You know, to to adjust and massage, you know, in various directions. Um, you know, maybe there's something that you could walk me through. I'm I'm just curious about how that how you how you feel through this process. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, often, um, often the base that I'm making is going to be in response to um, what I can harvest out of the area at that point. Um, so, for example, I'll uh, I'll harvest. Yarrow, for example, in early July, and then it just becomes how I decide to use it, what malts I'm going to use in combination with it, and that's a whole series of decisions in itself that comes together. Uh, how do you make those? So yeah, uh, I often uh, liken yarrow to having almost um, kind of a, a sprite or a ginger kind of characteristic to them. So. Um, some years I might be interested in pulling out uh, this sort of darker version of it and uh, almost like a ginger cake kind of aspect to it. Uh, and to that end, I'll, I'll start incorporating some dark malts. Uh, I'll start incorporating different kinds of uh, different kinds of grains in order to sort of give those kinds of similar bakery impressions, you know, uh, that the bake, bake shop style thing. Uh, and then, um, and then just deciding what kind of wood it's going to go into, uh, just based off of how it's, how it's coming out, how much, how much of that ginger aspect it's expressing, 
uh, whether it needs a, a more sort of aggressive wood to go with it or a more neutral one. So using uh, using using some application of wood, I'll do that uh, and just see how it develops over the over the months, uh, and then maybe maybe it's perfect the way it is. Uh, maybe it needs some more yarrow. Maybe it needs <laughs> something else entirely. Maybe it's gonna become a, a fruit beer in the future or something like that. So I I I kind of build them up as uh, a, a different series of stock. You know. Sure. Are there specific malts that uh, you find work within your general mixed culture approach to beer making? Um, you know, I assume that you're making more pale mixed culture beers than darker mixed culture beers, yeah. just given that that is the, the where, where most consumers are sure. for these these days. But at the same time, you want malt that will function and provide a, a, a you know, and then you're going to mash that in a way that is going to feed this mixed culture for uh, its longer mm. fermentation process? Are there some ingredients that you find yourself leaning on more than others? Yeah, I mean, I I use pretty exclusively local malt. So whether it's grown in Vermont or malted in Vermont or grown in Massachusetts or, or grown in Vermont and malted in Massachusetts or whatever, mm -hmm. um, but I try and work with as local locally produced malt and grains as I can. And I really, I really do use a lot of different raw grains as well. Uh, some, some from as close as from behind the brewery, uh, hmm. the, as I mentioned, it's located on a farm. So there's fields of rye, fields of wheat that are grown right there. Uh, and I'll use those on occasion as well. Or, uh, or, you know, maybe collaborating with another, uh, local person using local grains as well, a baker or something like that, make a kvass style beer something like that. So yeah, uh, above and beyond that, uh, that is a kind of a self-imposed limitation I put on myself to, uh, to use as local ingredients as I can, just because I want to really focus on, um, the, what, what makes our, our area in Vermont so special and, uh, try and make beers that are as close to the landscape there as I can. Sure. Sure. We'd love to come back to some of this culture question again and understand how you move it away from the barnyard that you don't enjoy as much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and also again, find, uh, the, the proper expression of acidity, yeah. um, as well as, you know, the, the kind of pleasant, uh, uh you know, uh, for lack of a better word, funk character mm. in, in subtle ways that, that support complexity and depth. But, uh, before we do that, Oh, you like wildly aromatic IPAs and tropical lagers. Good thing. Omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason. Thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops and wait, there's more. Omega yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one week lead time, ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Also, sustainability doesn't have to cost you more. Try Robert's Polypro's multi-pack can handles designed for sustainability and cost savings. Grip pack rings are biodegradable and average five cents per unit. Craft pack carriers are recyclable and designed with 30% less plastic. Plus, you can save up to 25% on costs. Enjoy easy application with inline applicators and 24-7 support. It's easy to go green with these multi-pack handles. Visit go.robertspolypro.com slash cbbpod to request free samples and start saving today. And this episode is sponsored by Yakima Chief Hops, the 100% grower-owned hop supplier whose mission is to connect hop growers and world-class brewers. It's more than a box of hops. It's supporting family farms. Yakima Chief Hops is proud to have an established return-to-grower program, which redistributes an average of 75% of their business earnings back to the family farms who grow the hops in your beer. Where you buy your ingredients matters, and with Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a box of hops. Learn more at yakimachief.com slash return dash growers. So let's talk a little bit again about, about that culture piece. I'm, uh, I'm still curious about this. I'm, I'm not trying to evade the question, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've listened to the podcast before, you know, that it's my job to, to try to absolutely to, to keep uh, harassing you with these questions yeah. uh, until I'm at least somewhat satisfied. But yeah. uh, no, but I am curious about that because, 
you know, again, we have the cliches that, that hang out there in the world of brewing, especially in mixed culture brewing and barnyard is one of them. But I yeah. love w- listening to the way brewers articulate different kinds of ideas for flavors that they're trying to achieve. And then, you know, manifest that with process and, you know, to, to achieve that. And so I'm mm. curious about how you work with yours in order to, you know, create, you know, ultimately create some of these flavors that are more in tune with what you want to put out in the world. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I briefly mentioned before that I find uh, mixed culture beer being very transportive. And uh, I feel uh, as opposed to making IPAs, which I've certainly done for a lot of my career, um, there's, it's it's almost uh, a different way of exploring flavor altogether. Um, I feel like a lot of IPAs, they kind of exist more or less on a, on a spider graph of, uh, citrus high notes or, or, uh, or floral or, uh, bitterness or whatever, whatever tropical or, um, but I feel like the best mixed culture beers that I've had have been transportive. They'll bring you to the woods, bring you to the, uh, you know, to the water, bring you to all these different places. And, um, and I the feel, farmhouse in the Belgian countryside. Exactly, yeah. 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 No, not just that. Or but, gritty urban Brussels, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. I, I feel like for me, it definitely cl- connects with memory and places a lot more than just as simple as, uh, uh, you know, the spider graph of flavor profile. Um, and uh, for me, part of that, what connects those things is. Uh, is is using botanicals, using mixed culture, because what you get out of a result of those different combinations is uh, is so much more and beyond what you can get otherwise. And um, you, you know, just think of just think of the flavor profile of earthy. People talk about earthiness, but they mean everything from like herbal mintiness to uh, to really like mushroom kind of flavors. And there's just like a so many interesting and varied layers to what an earthy profile is and uh you know and some people don't want any of it <laughs> but uh but i feel uh that is one thing that i really enjoyed digging down on um i'd mentioned that i'd made a beer with with mushrooms and lichen and things like that before and uh you know if that doesn't transport you into uh taking a walk in the woods uh nothing nothing in the beer world can I feel like uh, a lot of the a lot of the different. Well, I mean, for example, hops themselves are are an herb. Um, so I mean, just using the broad spectrum of other useful plants out there that have and or could be used for brewing uh, historically uh, is really fertile territory. Um, so, for example, I've mentioned yarrow a few times. That's about as ancient of a brewing herb as you can get. Sure. Uh, other, other things, the, like sweet gale and all these other kinds of wonderful herbs out there. Uh, you know, what, what, where, um, using them with mixed culture, using them, uh, in different contexts, there's just so much you can draw on there. Is, is there some, what are some of the levers that you pull with your mixed culture fermentation to, to again, keep it from you know, developing excessive acidity. I mean, um, imagine you're using the same hopping trip tricks that a lot of folks are, yeah. uh, you know, are, are doing in that regard, you know, um, and, you know, but in terms of developing, you know, f- funk character to yeah. it, you know, you're not trying to have that overpower, um, you know, the same, the, the same kind of herbal component. You yeah. want to try to keep that gentle and soft, you know, are there yeah. some, you know, ways through that fermentation that you steer it in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do feel just the fact that I'm using a sack strain to do the the vast amount of heavy lifting yeah. in the fermentation. So what that'll typically look for for me on like a 10 Plato wort or something like that is, you know, within a, within a few days, I'm down to 1.5, mm. 1.3, something like that. And, uh, at that point, I'll, I'll give it a few, maybe a, a week or so in Is order this a to diastaticus, uh, sack strain. Uh, or? Often, often, often okay. they are. Yeah. I also use like the Norwegian stuff, which, uh, mm-hmm. isn't all, all that. Um, but, uh, it'll, it'll drop 
uh, it'll drop a lot of yeast during that. I also try and select for heavy flocculating because mm-hmm. I, I have no glycol in my in my brewery. Um, so I try and leave a good amount of that yeast behind, uh, and then I'll send it over into oak. And that's where you see that last uh, half point Play-Doh uh, attenuate. And that's you know you can you can see that happen over the next month, month and a half, two months, um, and then from that on, from then on, it's just uh, allowing it time to harmonize, uh, figuring out what the next step is for it, uh, and where it's going to go. So you're pretty much start. Well, I wouldn't say starving, but you're limiting the the amount of anything fermentable that's left for that culture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just to keep it working in a more minimal kind of way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that is, that is a big part of it, especially since I don't have, uh, some of those, some of those levers that would, uh, help stabilize the beer. I'm not filtering it in any kind of way. I'm not, uh, dropping the temperature and, and, uh, and sort of making modifications to its behavior. How long does a typical fermentation take then for you? Yeah. I mean, that first, that first phase of fermentation, I mean, it'll it'll usually start fermenting within the first six hours. You'll see some yeah. evidence of activity, uh, and and yeah, usually uh, usually within that first twenty four hours, uh, probably drops about four four Play-Doh, something like that, and then in the next uh, in the first forty eight hours, it's it's pretty much within within a point of Play-Doh of where it's gonna where it's gonna be before I send it over to Oak. So after just a few days, you're you're moving it out of your stainless and into oak. No, no. After a few days, it's basically uh, it's done. It's finished. It's saccharomyces yeah. uh, attenuation. Uh, at that point, I'm just letting all of that sack drop out of suspension. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and the Brett will still will still carry over, and will still uh, will still act on it over those over those months in oak. So then, how long does it spend in stainless before you move it into oak? So that's it's usually about two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Pretty typical. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, again, I'm not chilling it before I send it over or anything. So I'm just, and, and the main, main part of that is really just to, I mean, I've done oak fermentations and things like that as well, but the main part of that is just to carry over as little yeast as I, as I need to. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, it, it goes into barrel often looking pretty, uh, I wouldn't say exactly hazy IPA, but, uh, unfiltered. Sure. IPA, yeah. How how long uh, do your beers tend to uh, st- uh, spend in residence in oak? Uh, and I imagine some of this is going to be seasonal because some of the temperature may uh, seasonal temperature shifts may adjust. You know how long something yeah. might need to to be in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, each each barrel has started to develop its own kind of uh, yeah. culture, its own kind of microflora in there, and uh, you know some some will produce great tasting beer very quickly. Uh, when, and for me very quickly is three, four months. Uh, some of it will, will take a year. Um, and sometimes it's just kind of in a, and it's, it's developed where it needs to. And it's, you know, it's waiting for fruit to come in. It's waiting for whatever I'm going to take out of the woods and, uh, and use in the next beer, whatever kind of maceration or whatever. Are these, you know, 50 gallon wine, wine barrels, 55 gallon spirit barrels? I mean, what do you, you know, uh, larger punchins? What do you find? Or do you use some mix of all of these things? Uh, it's usually, usually a mix. I mean, I'd say the most, most of the things, uh, in my cellar are punchins. Hmm. Uh, I just, I just like that amount of beer. So 500 liters, uh, it's just an easy amount of beer to package in a day. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's, it just seems to work out really well for me. I like the, the degree of, uh, of surface area that you get to mm-hmm. the, to the beer itself. I feel like it develops in a, in a, I don't know, it just seems more, more rounded all in all. Uh, I feel like the uh, smaller barrels are a lot less predictable. Interesting. That's just in my experience. Maybe other people are better masters of the the smaller barrel, <laughs> smaller format barrel. And so you'll leave a culture and pull off a fair amount of beer, but probably still leave some beer along with the culture and yeah. then load another beer on top of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not, not a full on Solera in that sense, but, uh, Oh yeah. No, I don't, I don't try and leave a bunch of beer. I, I usually will, you know, I'll usually drop uh dead yeast. I'll usually do, do things like that. Uh, as well as, you know, try and get, as much of the beer out of there as I can, mm-hmm. whether it means there's a partial barrel I'm topping off somewhere or, or whatever it is. How then? How do you then clean them between uh, batches? 
The barrels? Yeah. Oh, I've actually installed ports at the bottom of all of them. Just yeah. very simple inch and a half uh, tri-clamp to uh, one inch uh, uh, taper taper screw uh-huh. at the bottom of them. And uh, I'll actually put... Uh, I'll actually put um, a, a valve at the bottom of it. And uh, that works out well for me because I don't have a forklift and mm-hmm. I don't have, uh, I don't even have one of those like walk behind uh, materials lifts. Uh, so barrels are better off if they can just stay in place. And once I'm emptied out the barrel, I can just spray out the eulage or uh, I can even run a run a cycle on it with some, something if it's, uh, and, and then that's actually going to, have a lot to do with what the status of that barrel is, yeah. whether it needs a fuller reset or whether it can just simply be basically filled back up. In any case, I usually try not to leave a bunch of yeast at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you anything to limit oxygen then in between those, uh, you know, to, uh, well, I'm typically pushing out with, uh, with CO2, mm-hmm. uh, and then before I'm going back into a barrel, if it hasn't been purged, I'll purge out of yeah. the barrel. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just to avoid that acetobacter. And yeah, that potential. And also, I mean, uh, keep the beer I, healthy. I haven't quite converted all my barrels over, but I'm also filling them from below as well too. Mm. So it's it. Uh, I'm not I'm not using the racking cane, which is a little bit more yeah. aggressive. You know, up and over and down and all over. <laughs> sure, sure. A so. gentle gentle fill pushes that CO two up with it and keeps it yeah under yeah. a blanket there. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I, it does. Yeah, you can purge out the barrel from the bottom and then. Uh, and then yeah, start filling from the bottom, nice and gentle. Makes sense. Let's talk. Um, let's talk about using some of these herbal ingredients and foraged ingredients. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned yarrow. How do you use yarrow? Hot yeah. side, cold side. You know, um, how do you do? You, Everywhere. Okay. Uh, the, <laughs> do you use any special process? Do you make teas out of these? Yeah, and, uh, I, I mean, and that's often what when I'm. Uh, when I'm researching something new yeah. that I want to use, it, it'll start from observing it out in nature, or maybe maybe I'll read a text that says, uh, you know, this, this used to be used in a, a gruit of some sort back mm-hmm. in whenever. Um, but especially if you if you spend a lot of time looking through some of these nature guides, like the Peterson guide, if you turn to the back, which is a popular edibles guide, uh, you turn to the back of it and it has everything divided out by its use. So whether it's something that you can make into candy, something you can make into a steamed uh, green, uh, and there's like a large section of tea, hmm. and it's often uh, in the Peterson Guide, it's it's divided by season. So you can actually look by season and see uh, what they suggest uh, might be something you could use in tea. Um, and I feel like that's a pretty good place to start for anybody who's kind of interested in it because... Um, Often if it's making some sort of tea and has some kind of strong aromatic impact, then uh, that's usually a pretty good indication that it might work well in beer. Actually, the first time I used yarrow was when I was out in Oregon. I came across, um, we were staying in a state park in the Columbia Gorge, and uh, me and my wife just came across this huge field of yarrow, and uh, and it's actually, she tipped me off to it because... uh, she she is just very familiar with it. It grows everywhere, and her being a lifelong gardener, um, we have some yarrow in our yard now too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a it's a great plant, and uh, it just really loves sunny, sunny, uh, well drained soil. And uh, so yeah, we came across it, and it's just so aromatic. And uh, me, I, I remember from my from my Greek background having chai vunu, which is this kind of a mountain tea, and it had that very similar kind of. Uh, resiny, uh, strong, uh, ar- aromatic. Uh, so yeah, just, uh, we picked a bunch of it right then and there. And, uh, I, I was homebrewing with it at that time is actually the kind of, that evolution might be a little bit interesting too, if we have time, but there was this project that was, uh, put on by this guy, Eric Steen around, uh, Oregon. He's done sure. it. He's done it in Colorado here as well. Yeah, he I think. started in Colorado Springs, the focus on the beer and then, yeah. Yeah. And he was at what Hopworks Hub yeah, in, uh, exactly, in yeah. Oregon, Portland. Yeah. yeah, he was doing these beers made by walking uh, type mm-hmm. things where yep. brewers would get together with rangers or whoever else and go on a go on a walk. And um, for me, that was one of the first times commercially. I mean, I've been doing it on a homebrew level, but one of the first times commercially that uh, 
that I started bringing forageables into, into the, into the beers. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that was, that was one of the, that was one of the first impetuses of that for me. Um, but, uh, in terms of places that I might use yarrow, typically it's, uh, well, with the versatility of my system, I can do anything from throwing it in with the mash <laughs> sure, sure, or throwing it into the boil kettle, throwing it into the, throwing it into the cool ship. Uh, I often don't, uh, unless I'm, unless I'm doing it like a side fermentation, I'm often not introducing it into, uh, the culture itself, like fermenting with herbs in the, in the, mm-hmm. in the culture. I usually try and leave that so it can be pretty versatile in its own right. Uh, but yeah, uh, I've definitely done it, uh, in the packaging tank, uh, mm-hmm. done sort of longer macerations and what's the difference vessels. between say uh, like a cold, cold edition yeah. versus, a uh, you know, hot edition or something where it's, it's gotten, you know, spent some time on heat. Yeah. I mean, there's, it, it's really dependent on, on the herb. Yarrow is one of those that you can throw it into a boil and a year later it will still be still be in there in the barrel, you know, mm. uh, I feel like it's, uh, a very salient, uh, herb and, uh, and you can certainly introduce more, more of it. Um, but I feel, uh, it's, it's one of those things that's just really, uh, herb by herb dependent. And I feel like a lot of those that might be really, uh, resinous. I mean, I, I imagine it'd be similar if you're using any of those types of herbs that have thujone in them, like, uh, sage or uh rosemary or um you know those those various kinds of herbs that will have that really intense resiny character i feel like those translate best uh over the long term something uh something you know using using something in a more uh short term like a, a cold steep post fermentation post barrel aging um those things uh, often more like uh, flowers, like lilacs or mm. something like that. If you're using uh, those, I feel like those uh, those will are a little too ephemeral to try and try and age over long term with it. Um, they volatilize a bit more in a hot environment. Yeah, definitely that, and just uh, they'll just fade over that mm. over that year, you know, or however long it takes aging. So those those types of things will usually just do in a in a small small tank maceration just really see where the see how it develops and be ready to take it off when it tells you it's done what are what are some of your other favorite uh foraged ingredients to pull in and how have you found to use them to to make some compelling beers yeah i mean my my first and foremost was sumac because it grows all over in vermont Mm -hmm. um and i feel like uh Again, just being interested in these kinds of uh, citrus profiles. There's not a lot in Vermont that that uh, matches up very well with that. I mean, if I was, if I uh, allowed myself to, I'd you know there'd be all kinds of citrus I'd love to love to throw into beers, especially lime flavors flavors like that. Um, but uh, so I often try and focus on some of those where I find them in the Vermont landscape, and sumac is one of those. Another one is uh, sea sea berry or sea buckthorn. Um, uh, you don't you don't often get that profile in in Vermont, so I uh, I explore it where I can. Um, some of the other ones that I really enjoy using uh, are uh, I besides yarrow, uh, goldenrod. I use goldenrod quite a bit. I mean, a lot of them are just kind of just kind of once I'll try something or maybe a, maybe a couple times. But any kind of intense flower, elderflower, uh, lilac, um, uh, linden flower, uh, a lot of those I'll, I I love to use those. They're just so uh, intoxicating in their own right, you know, that floral aspect of them. How do you add them, and what kind of uh, you know threshold do you need to yeah. add these floral elements? You know, prob- typically on the cold side, yeah, you know, to, to achieve some sort of you know, flavor that's going to be noticeable because obviously you've got ephemeral uh, flavors from these flowers that are working in a beer that's got some flavor, you know, to it. That's pretty significant already. Yeah. How do you make them convey and how do you find a way to balance those too? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's, a lot of it's trial and error. There's, I mean, I try and just take notes when I, when I do something 
get a sense of do you bench many, test on any of these individuals, you know, with some of these ingredients uh, before you go in and, and make the additions? Yeah, often I'll have uh, like a series of uh, demijohns, so fifty mm-hmm. liter, fifty liter glass winemaking kind of containers, and uh, I'll often do uh, macerations in there. Um, and you know, I've in places like that is where I've explored with oh, spruce tips is another one that mm-hmm. I really love to use a whole lot, but I'll also use. Um, the, the tips from pine, which they actually call candles. They kind of look hmm. straight up and down like candles. Um, pine tips, uh, fir tips, uh, cedar branches, things like that. Um, and uh, for for some of those, I'll use them in in small uh, in small macerations just to check, uh, you know, what happens with extended contact time. What happens if you leave it on there for six months as opposed to, uh, you know, a week. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's often where I'm. I'm Have you found them. any unexpected, uh, you know, learning from from that things that you that have worked in different ways than you might have assumed they would? Um, yeah, I have found I have found some things uh, affect differently. Like there was, uh, I've I often will use those for sort of goofy projects as well. So messing around with vegetables and and uh, and you know one of one vegetable I like that's extremely aromatic is fennel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that will ever that one will ever come out, but, uh, <laughs> but it 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 is it is intense. And where, whereas I was just hoping to get some of that more ethereal aspect of the fennel, it brings its whole self to it. And uh, it, it, there's a there's definitely a, a a a depth of vegetable character to it too that that is undeniable. Do you ever blend back portions of those demijohns into a larger batch just so that you can balance the, you know, the kind of exact uh, or more exact kind of level of something? Yeah. I mean, often they are very intense, uh, you know, high, high, uh, you know, fruit or, or vegetable or whatever it is to, to a beer ratio. So uh, I will often blend it back to, to find where I, I think it's, it's palatable. I mean, I don't, I don't feel like often I'm trying to be uh, extremely overwhelming in the characteristics that I'm using of these of these uh, materials. So uh, I will try and find a place that still communicates that it's beer. Sure, sure. Are there any other kind of you know unconventional, whether they're combinations or in, of ingredients that uh, that you found have produced interesting beers uh, working in concert together? Um. Yeah, yeah, I have. I uh, this probably goes back to my to my uh, side project days at Hill Farmstead, but I was, uh, yeah, just this. I, I had a bunch of birch sap, which is a, a season that comes right after maple, and it's, it's commonly used for you know they, people people make syrup out of it, as well as kind of drinks. Uh, but I got my hands on a bunch of birch sap. And use that as the mash-in liquid, and mm. use it for uh, an iteration of a of a beer that I'd made with a friend of mine before. That uses uh, a lot of juniper branches and uh, cedar and fir and spruce. Uh, so it, it was our it was kind of a, a interpretation of a Gotlandrika, and uh, so but in our own kind of version of it. Um, but yeah, the the birch sap. Vermont yeah. <laughs> the birch sap aspect of it yeah. really uh really punched it up made it actually really intense it needed mm. to be it needed the whole thing needed to be blended back with a with a, a barrel of some well-aged uh well-aged beer but once it was it was uh it was beautiful sure sure well as we get on here uh let's zoom out a little bit um wonder camera started as a side project at hill farmstead it be you know it has been your kind of creative project it's now it's now your brewery and yeah. now uh you know it's your your sole focus in brewing what do you hope to achieve with wonder camera you know in the next five to ten years you know what what is left out there for you to explore what do you hope that uh you know that people understand the wonder camera brand as mm-hmm. and uh you know and what what else do you want to do here in the world of beer. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked that. I often feel like I hear I hear these questions go out like uh you know, where do you want to be 
I, I feel like I am where I want to be and I'm doing pretty much what I want to be doing. And, um, it might sound kind of narrow minded, but kind of more of the same, you know, uh, because for me, that is a perpetual process of exploration, uh, perpetual discovering, uh, it doesn't mean it won't lead me in kinds of odd directions or sideways or all kinds of, all kinds of other directions. But, um, but yeah, I'm pretty much, pretty much doing what I want to be doing right now. And I feel like that's the, that's the best way we can be, you know? And, uh, sorry, what was the other, what was the other part? And in terms of, uh, what people, is there think? anything else you want to accomplish and how do you want people to, to view wonder camera? Oh, um, well, I don't have, I have pretty much zero control of how people view my, view my project. That's but not I, true. <laughs> That's not true. They, you condition that in everything that you make and in every communication and every interaction you have with people. Yeah. But you know, uh, I, they might just think I'm crazy. So, but, <laughs> well, but hey, that's a noble goal in and of itself. Uh, yeah. I, I, I hope that when, when people try some of my beers, they are having a great experience, uh, with with somebody that they care about sharing something and more than anything else i really hope that it just connects with people i mean it goes from my experience in being a, a puppeteer in the back where you sort of gather a small audience around yourself and uh you know i'm not i'm not trying to speak to to everybody it doesn't matter to me if everybody uh has an opinion or or has a love for for the kinds of projects i'm doing but uh i hope that I hope that uh, it connects with people either because they expect it or because they don't expect it or uh, whatever, but that, but that, uh, but that sort of connection comes through the bottle. That sounds like a beautiful thing. And I can't wait to, to get up there to Northern Vermont and see it in person one of these days, hopefully yeah. sometime early next year. Yeah. But that is a great place to bring this to a close. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Carry Biofine is a natural and economical clarification aid available from BSG. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. AccuBrew helps you detect problems before they ruin a batch. ProBrew has rotary can fillers in stock with a two to four week lead time. Omega's thialized yeasts bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Go green with multi-pack handles from Robert's PolyPro. And Yakova Chief Hops' mission is to connect hop growers and world-class brewers. If you've enjoyed this podcast and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Um, some of Vasily's thoughts on rusticity in farmhouse and Saison beers show up in the next issue of Craft Beer and Brewing in a story that uh, Kate Bernat has written for us. Um, if people want to learn more about Wonder Vasily, where do they find more about you all uh probably easiest place is uh, uh wonder camera beer manufacturer on uh, on instagram um i have a website www.wondercamerabeer.com uh those are yeah probably instagram is the most uh, up-to-date cool well it's been wonderful talking to you about your mixed culture approach to brewing foraging making beer on a wood-fired copper kettle um, in this very intentional but also historic kind of way. Uh, it's interesting and inspiring, and uh, yeah, thanks for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, Jamie. Thank you so much. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.